Thank you for listening to Schick Talk, the podcast produced by the Swine Health Information Center. I'm Barb Detterman, your host for today's episode. Hello and welcome to Schick Talk. Today's guests are Dr. Paul Sundberg, Executive Director of Swine Health Information, Dr. Dave Pyburn, Chief Veterinarian, National Pork Board, and Dr. Liz Wagstrom, Chief Veterinarian of the National Pork Producers Council. Good afternoon to all of you. Good afternoon, Barb. We know as a team, the pork organizations work well together, but we have a project going on right now that everybody's had a hand in and worked well together. And it's also to help producers learn more about African swine fever. Just start with a little bit of background about the project. And Dr. Sunberg, would you like to give us a little background about the project going on in Vietnam? Yeah, let's start with even farther back than that. Let's start with 2013 and the PED outbreak in the U.S. And when that happened, Pork Board had to do a lot of research very quickly because we knew little about that virus. We needed to know about control. We needed to know about management. We needed to know about biosecurity and epidemiology. And all of that was chasing the virus after it got here. With ASF, we've got an opportunity in Vietnam to not chase it, but get in front of it and learn the lessons about all of those things with management, control, epidemiology, et cetera, before it gets here. And that's the Vietnam project because we're looking at African swine fever real time as it breaks on farms in Vietnam. So um, with the National Pork Producers Council's help, we uh, got a grant from USDA Foreign Ag Service to do two things. One is to um, help in Vietnam with education and webinars, um, meetings, and providing information about ASF, and the other is to do field projects so we learn those lessons. And Liz can talk about NPPC's role and how they help get that grant in contacting uh, FAS. Yep, thanks, Paul. Um, we were very fortunate in our Washington, D.C. staff for NPPC that we have um, some staff members who had formerly worked for USDA's Foreign Agricultural Service. And so they understand the grant system, they understand the system of funding um, of in country projects that Foreign Agriculture Service does. And so we were um, made aware of some funds that had been identified within Foreign Agricultural Service that um, were needed, that needed to be moved into projects that would be in country projects that would um, help with agriculture in country. And so we competed with several other organizations for the funding that, that Schick received. And did that not only to have the help in country in Vietnam as they address African swine fever, but to realize that that is a really good opportunity for us to learn more that could help our producers in the case of an outbreak, as well as in the case of trying to prevent African swine fever from entering the country. So um, our team worked really closely with the Foreign Agricultural Service they rewrote the grant two or three times and were successful in getting it funded. Total, Barb, we got $1.7 million from USDA FAS. And, um, and we're looking forward to getting these projects done. They're going, um, but we're, uh, we're working on getting them uh, completed now. That grant is a two-year grant. So we have some time, but we're pushing on these projects as quickly as we can 
because we want to get this information with the idea of prevention, of course, but we need this information before African swine fever might get here. And so we're pushing real hard to get these things completed. Very good. So Dr. Sundberg, how many organizations, uh, universities, how many people are involved in this program? There are probably 11 or better. What we did was send out an open call for proposals and got uh, those proposals back. They were reviewed. They were um, went through a working group for accepting. And we contracted with organizations in the U.S. Um, for each one of these projects. What we made sure, though, was these organizations also had ties to researchers or farms or resources in Vietnam. So we contracted with U.S. organizations, universities, private companies, public companies, Canadian Food Inspection Agency, CFIA. So a wide variety of different uh, different organizations, each with contacts in Vietnam that could do specific things for us. Very good. So Dr. Pyburn, how does Port Board uh, come into this project? How are you playing a role? Yeah, and that's through the research funds, Barb. Um, Each year, uh, Checkoff sets priorities with producers as to what the research is that needs to be done for that year. Uh, So this is year 2020 dollars. And the research was prioritized for African swine fever for 2020 looking at prevention, also preparedness and response, and then diagnostics and surveillance were the three categories that we were looking to do research in. So what a great opportunity to further producer checkoff dollars by joining in with SHIC and the work they're doing in Vietnam. We've got a natural laboratory, if you will, over there, where we've got um, infection occurring in barns that are similar to ours and structures, uh, farm structures that are similar to ours it's a lot better research to be able to do it in a situation like that where we're dealing with large populations of animals rather than trying to simulate within a small laboratory setting. And we only have limited laboratory settings where we can do this here in the United States or in Canada. So it's a great opportunity to take checkoff dollars, take a look at those biosecurity, those diagnostics and surveillance issues that we want to address and do that over there in that natural lab of Vietnam where they've got an outbreak. Sounds good. So this is a question for all three of you, but why is this project important to U.S. producers? Why do we need to do this project if we're going to prevent it from coming in? I'll start you there, Barb. Okay. And and it's important because let's look at what ASF has done globally for just the last uh, three to four years. It, it, It continues to advance, even though we've got countries that are trying to to stop that advancement between. Uh, some of the EU Eastern countries, Russia, the Asian countries where we've got it, or Asian area where we've got it. We just are not seeing a lot of success other than maybe the Czech Republic and now potentially Belgium too, being able to eradicate the virus. But we're not seeing a lot of success with folks slowing this thing down. And then when we start to take an assessment of the risks to our country and the way that this virus can move in pigs on in product or potentially on contaminated uh, footwear, clothing, um, or other objects, we feel like this is a, really a risk for our country, for our industry. And it's something that we need to address and we've got to be ready for when it gets here so that we can act quickly, try to contain it very quickly and get back to some semblance of normal just as quick as possible for our industry. To follow up with what David said, you know, we've seen really two different kinds of outbreaks globally. One is the Eastern European that has been mainly an uh, outbreak of wild 
for feral pigs um, and not really affected a lot of commercial production. When you get to Asia, it's a totally different outbreak. It has been a disease largely of commercial production. And I think having the opportunity to be in those commercial facilities to try to look at things like um, partial depopulation or uh, methods for appropriately being able to clean and disinfect so you can repopulate successfully. All of those are strategies we're gonna need if we were to ever get a case of African swine fever. All three of our organizations, our top priority obviously is prevention, but we can't overlook preparedness um, and, and pretend and not accept that we may not be 100% successful in, pre in prevention. How about you, Dr. Sundberg? What's your thoughts on that? Well, it's like I said at the beginning, what we don't want to do is we don't want to chase the virus once it gets here. We want to be able to hit it head on and in control and management uh, response and recovery as quickly as possible. These projects are really getting that preparation. I don't know, Liz, is it when instead of if or is it if or when instead of when? I still say if or when, <laughs> if and when. You know, I, I say, I, I make myself say if, because I, I just don't want to see it happen here. But yeah. folks, let's be honest with ourselves. Let's look at a number of these countries where this virus is currently active in pigs. They're not going to eradicate it. They're going to live with this for decades, probably, in some of these countries. I don't see them being successful in some of these countries getting rid of it. So the risk is going to continue as we go forward for our industry here. Yeah, and if we get it, or if or when, or when we get it, Liz, we'll be into a full-blown eradication program as quickly as we can. And these types of field projects that we're doing is really in preparation for that type of eradication program to make sure that we recover as quickly as we can. And we absolutely have to do that, Paul. Don't want to see this in, in our pigs. Um, it's going to result in very high mortality and morbidity um, in our pigs. Uh, it's just, it's about as ugly as you can get on a farm, I think, it, with looking at how it'll probably affect our naive pigs. So I, I think eradication and an eradication effort and actually success is the only thing we can do. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about projects themselves. Do we have any results yet? When do we expect results? I'll turn that to you, Dr. Sundberg, to kind of get us rolling on that and, and jump in, uh, Dr. Pyburn or Dr. Wagstrom, as you can on those, okay? Yeah, I'll go through kind of the, the categories, Barb, and some of the things that we have moving. First, uh, we're testing ELISA's. ELISA's looking for antibodies. And our tests right now that are approved in the U.S., we've got uh, a PCR that looks for antigen. But as you look down farther into an eradication program or farther into an infection, question about testing for antibodies comes up and we want to be as prepared as we can for that. So we started with a couple of projects that look at the ELISA test, their sensitivity and specificity. We asked South Dakota State University to take a look at rodents and the potential role that rodents would have in moving, transmitting, uh, infecting with the virus in farms. And one of the interesting things, the preliminary results, and it's very preliminary, they've gone out on the farms in Vietnam and, and collected rats and mice and tested them for ASF both inside the rats and mice as well as outside on their feet and on their fur. They can't find any. So they, that is an example of field research that 
when you put them in a laboratory, it might go one way, but when you're out in the field, you, you might have to uh, go a different way. So some potentially good news there is that we don't know that there's a role for rats and mice in moving this, and that would be helpful. We're also looking at baking time, like we've uh, had to do for PED and other pathogens, the baking of trailers, aluminum uh, and steel. So we're checking time by temperature there. We're looking at pathways of entry, both for outbreaks on the farm, as well as the risk of pathway from an infected boar stud and the movement of semen, an introduction of semen. The, Liz mentioned the targeted testing removal. It's been termed tooth extraction. If you can find an infection early in a barn of individually housed animals, the question becomes, and there has been some success in finding that early enough to keep it from spreading down the rows of those animals and taking out the infected animals first. Um, and so we're testing some protocols for that could be very important because if we get ASF here, we may have three different barns on a site or more. And if the infection shows up in one barn, we may be able to stop it from spreading within that barn or between barns. So that's a good, that's gonna be a good test of our ability to be able to manage that. We're looking at pen side tests too. And again, that's kind of like Eliza's, that's way down the road. Um, there would have to be a USDA policy change to be able to use penicillin tests. But if we get into an eradication program, a management program, it may be that we'll need to use penicillin tests to get quick answers about infection after the disease is endemic here. And the last one that I wanted to talk about is oral fluids. The, right now, the only antemortem or live sample type that is approved for use in the U.S. is whole blood. And so there's a whole scheme of surveillance that would collect whole blood from so many pigs so many times in such a way to be able to test. We use oral fluids for a lot of disease surveillance. And if we can investigate and approve, and that's a question of if it's sensitive and specific enough to be able to use oral fluids, but looking at that would give us another sample type it would be easily collectible, it would be cheap to collect, um, and we could do that multiple times in a surveillance program, much easier than collecting blood from pigs. That's the CFIA, Canadian Food Inspection Agency project. So we aren't limited just to the U.S. We're going outside too because we're trying to get collection of the best expertise that we can to work on each one of these things. I know Dave and uh, Pork Board have other lists about composting and alternative sample types, and we'll let Dave talk about that. Yeah, that's right, Paul. A couple of projects that, that we've tapped into here to be able to, to do over there in Vietnam in conjunction with this work is, is one is looking at uh, composting, the ability for the virus to survive in compost, because this is probably going to be one of our primary disposal methods for an eradication effort. COVID-19 taught us that this is probably going to be one of our main disposal methods. So uh, we need to find out, does it survive in composting? How long does it survive? Is there a certain carbon source material you can use to shorten that survival or maybe make it not survive? The material we're dealing with when we, when we have a compost pile. The other side of that too is uh, effluent. And we've got research going on uh, in conjunction with this project with Mark Hutchinson out of, out of the University of Maine 
looking at how long does the survival of the virus in manure. And then, as you know, we use that uh, as a resource fertilizer uh, to spread in our fields. So we need to determine what's the survival in that, in that effluent, that slurry. And then is there a pH, a time, or a temperature that we can apply to it to make sure that when we're spreading that effluent as a fertilizer, it's safe to be spread and, and would not be harboring virus or live virus anyway. And then another one that we've got uh, in conjunction with this is through Kansas State University, looking at feed mill biosecurity. Big question for us because it has been shown that this virus will survive in feedstuffs and that those feedstuffs can then contaminate a feed mill and feed trucks. What do we need to do to be able to clean up those, those mills and trucks? And that's some work that, uh, that K-State's doing in conjunction with this as well. With looking at all these different tests and all the different research projects, Dr. Wagstrom, you had an opportunity to do some looking at different things that countries were trying to do to keep this out. Is there anything that you learned in that process that maybe has been able to help us with this? Sure. We took two different, well, I guess, three different study trips that went to Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Denmark, and um, Germany and really looked at what they were trying to do. Again, their focus has been largely on feral pigs. Their wild boar population is very, very dense and they have a culture of hunting those wild boars and propagating the boars so they can be hunted. So um, it was very interesting to see how the European Union is working on surveillance so that they can identify any dead boars, whether they're positive or not, any hunted boars are tested, how they're setting up control zones, how they're setting up some of their fencing that may or may not work. But they have been very focused on surveillance, both of wild, dead wild boar, hunted wild boar, and then within their control zones, any animals that are moved to slaughter or moved within control zones are also tested prior to movement. Every animal that moves has got a certificate of veterinary inspection. They do inventories in their farms that are reported almost on a daily basis so that if inventory changes tremendously due to mortality, that can be flagged. So a lot of what we saw in Europe is very much focused on surveillance and how to set up regions that could be considered free. So the research projects that we have going on in Vietnam and has taking a different look at things so that we are prepared in case it gets here. And do we have any results from those research projects yet? Not yet, Barb, not for the ones that we're doing directly in Vietnam, except that uh, rats and mice project. These are all year projects. We contracted with most of them this spring. So we're in the middle of doing that right now. So we really don't have a lot to report on the preliminary results yet for them. But it is a point, just like the rats and mice project, that when you do field research, it's in many ways way better than doing research in the lab because you're dealing with populations of animals. But in many ways, it's also higher risk because you don't know exactly how things are gonna go on the farm and there may be other things that happen, other diseases that show up and so you don't have quite the control you have in the laboratory. So we're going to be nimble. We're going to be quick. Um, we're going to adjust as we need to. And that's part of, uh, that's part of doing field research. Yeah, Paul, this is, this is field research, but it's not just field research like doing it here in the United States somewhere. 
we're doing this halfway around the globe and we're doing it in the middle of a pandemic where we've got travel issues that, that come up into play as well. So it, it's going to take us a little longer, but I think the results will be better. We'll just have to wait and get there. Before we leave the topic of the different research projects that, that we are working on over there, I want to just touch on one that Paul talked about, and that's, that's this oral fluids as a sample, a sample type. Right now, as he stated, uh, the PCR that we use here for diagnostics is whole blood only. So not only is it the issue of having to draw blood on swine for samples, but it's also the issue of having to have that uh, purple top, that non-coagulating tube to be able to store the blood sample and then ship it off. I think that there's a couple of limiting factors there in our ability to do surveillance that way and to respond, especially respond to a large outbreak that way. We're going to have difficulty getting the samples that we need taken. And then too, with the resources, we're going to need to be able to put those samples into, namely those purple top non-coagulating tubes. We have got to continue to add to this oral fluid research. Um, this Vietnam project uh, will give us a large number of samples in a uh, commercial setting to be able to help to validate that oral fluid sample. Um, I think it's one of the most important things we're doing through this project. That's a good point, Dave. And then that leads to other sample types as well. Uh, I know that Pork Board has a project looking at different muscle swabs, for example. Sticking a swab into a cut in a carcass and being able to sample the meat juice that's in that carcass for African swine fever. That could be a real important piece of our testing control surveillance after it gets here. So those alternative, all those kinds of alternative sample types are really important. When ASF went into China in 2018, um, the only thing that we had was tonsil and whole blood. USDA quickly expanded those sample types. They went into spleen, we went into lymph nodes, um, they did a good job with moving sample types and giving alternatives that we could use in veterinary diagnostic labs in normal investigations. But we've got to get that list even longer. Oral fluids is one, serum is one, muscle swabs, spleen swabs. There's a whole list of alternative sample types that, that we're working on and USDA is working on with us. Yeah, and some of those non-invasive one, Paul, will be non-invasive techniques for taking samples will be very important, especially when you start to look at the potential mortality caused by this virus, whether it's in feral swine or domestic swine. And we just may not have the ability to take a blood sample if we, we've got a, an animal that's been dead for some time. And we may not want to open up that animal to take a lymph node or a, a, a spleen sample for fear that we're going to contaminate the surrounding environment with further virus. So things like those uh, oral swabs, nasal swabs, muscle swabs, those become very important in those cases. Yeah, I think Paul brought up a good point is that um, since China went positive, um, USDA's National Animal Health Laboratory Network has really done, expanded their sample types. They've expanded their ability on the numbers of tests they can run and the number of laboratories that can run those tests. So one of the things that NPPC has been working hard on is, as we've looked at the COVID packages, is also making sure that within some of the COVID funding that is still hopefully working its way through, through Congress, um, that we could get funding for our National Animal Health Laboratory Network. Um, a lot of them did COVID testing, but you know, as we expand 
any funding toward them, it would also be appropriate to, you know, that money could be used to help them build capacity for African swine fever. That might be a good topic people to be interested in too, Liz and Dave, uh, brought up COVID. So what have we learned from COVID this spring and, and ongoing, unfortunately, what have we learned from that that's going to help us with African swine fever? I look at things we learned from COVID and one of the things that we watched public health struggle with is surveillance and testing. We're nine months into an outbreak and they're still struggling with what, what testing means, how to get people tested, how accurate are some of their tests, et cetera. It would be criminal for us not to be um, have a surveillance scheme set up and have the appropriate tests when we know what pathogen we're dealing with. With public health, COVID was brand new. They didn't have a test because it was a brand new pathogen. We have got the luxury of knowing what we're worried about, that it's African swine fever. And we just need to continue to keep expanding our test types. We work closely with USDA and the state animal health officials trying to put together surveillance schemes. So what, how would you surveil within your control zones? Would you test or how would you test within those zones that are considered free? So the more that we can get decided before we would have an outbreak, um, the further ahead we're gonna be. Boy, you know, another thing we've learned there watching what's happened on the COVID human side is the need to work ahead on a vaccine and have it in place before you have the outbreak here. Uh, our public health folks did not have the advantage of knowing that COVID-19 was going to become the issue that it's become here in the year 2020. And, but they very quickly then have put into place uh, and, and funded uh, vaccine work on COVID-19. We know what's coming. We know, we know what the ASF virus looks like. We've worked with it um, for vaccines for a number of years unsuccessfully. Now, since China has broke, we've seen a renewed effort on, uh, globally on being able to put this vaccine together. But I think we've got to have it put together before it comes over here to, to our industry. Sounds like Plum Island has an excellent candidate. Now let's get the, the corporate effort and the, uh, the money behind that to see if that's a candidate that's gonna work for our industry. From a policy side on the vaccine, um, that opens up the whole idea of how do we negotiate with our trading partners to accept meat from vaccinated animals. And so I totally agree with Dave that having a vaccine is gonna be important, but it's gonna open up some challenges when you look at trade and accepting meat from vaccinated animals. How about depopulation and disposal? What did we learn from that? We weren't ready. We weren't <laughs> ready at all. We didn't have the resources in place to be ready to have a large scale depopulation effort as we saw. And that, that comes back to industry states and, and federal government. We need to to make sure we've got a, a plan and not only a plan, but we have the resources to fulfill that plan and get it done in a timely manner on our farms so that we don't run into welfare issues on our farms. One of the things we did learn was that the National Veterinary Stockpile was not equipped to depopulate large animals. They were set up to depopulate poultry. Um, but what we had as an advantage in COVID is that you could bring animals to a central depopulation site and you could dispose of their carcasses at a central site, whether it was a landfill or a compost site. 
we will not have that luxury in the case of a foreign animal disease. They're not, there's gonna be very unlikely that we will be able to move animals off site to a central depopulation site when they are exposed or potentially infected. And then disposing of those carcasses is gonna take more care, which is why the Vietnam project is so important on looking at composting. But I think we, we learned that we weren't prepared in COVID to handle depopulation of large numbers of, of pigs. It was less complex than what we will face if we have an African swine fever outbreak. How about you, Dr. Sundberg? What'd you learn from this? Well, and just to be clear, um, we talk about, I brought up populate, depopulation and disposal. It's not because the pigs were infected with COVID, it's because of the market backup that happened because of the plant personnel issues that went on. So we had a backup of pigs onto the farm from markets and because of welfare, because of issues with being able to handle them, there was some depopulation that had to happen. And those were the lessons that were really important to learn. Um, these things about being prepared, uh, it all fits into the package of preparation for response and recovery, whether it is lessons from the COVID outbreak or ASF on the farm in Vietnam, all of those things um, are, although we hope we don't ever have to use them and we're focused on prevention, we just have to be prepared for this. And that's really, I think, one of the biggest things that we can take away, both from our history with PED and now our recent history with the COVID epidemic, um, that it, preparedness and response is really important. And, and credit to the pork industry, USDA, state animal health officials, veterinarians, we're all looking at these lessons very hard and making sure that as best as possible, we can apply them so we're ready if it gets here. I don't, I've been asked, uh, well, are we ready? Are we, are we set now? And the answer to that, you're never ready, but you're way more ready than you were last week and way more ready last week than you were the week before that. And so we'll be more ready next week and we'll continue to improve, but at least um, we're making progress. And that's part of the Vietnam projects too, Paul. It's, it's enabling us to be, to experience it in an actual production setting in an outbreak and be able to, uh, to learn from what Vietnam does, what they don't do and how they handle the situation over there. So another question that I think we need to get out to everybody is, as producers and practitioners are listening to this podcast, how do they keep up with this Vietnam project? Is there a place they can go to look for more information? Is there a specific way to find out how we're doing on all those projects? Well, with every project that we do, every project, whether and whether it's Pork Board or whether it's SHIC or any project, that research project, we require updates, periodic updates, and final reports. As we go through this, there will be updates from each of these projects. The Swine Health Information Center is going to work to get those out as quickly as we can, just to give people a heads up that something is coming in, not with final results yet, but a heads up that we're getting results and we're making progress. I'm sure through all of our organizations, communications departments, um, we'll make the best effort we can to make sure people are informed. SwineHealth.org is a good spot to go for updates, signing up for the newsletter that would give you monthly reports, both on projects that are happening as well as 
disease status, both in the U.S. and around the world for different pathogens. Yeah, and it's the same message for me. We're going to be communicating these out as we go. It's going to be, for the checkoff, it'll be rather large news as we get information, new information on the ASF virus and its survival in th- the things we've talked about, like compost and insulary. That would be new ex- uh, research information that would be out there. Also, feed mill biosecurity, that has come up many times. And if we can get to some answers there, again, it's going to be pushed out by the checkoff through multiple avenues through our communications department. Uh, as we get that information available. This is stuff that we can't sit on. It's got to be seen right away. We've got to start to change plans as far as our ASF prevention and response plans in in conjunction with what we learn, because some of this is going to be brand new, brand new information that folks haven't been able to uncover before. And of course, ours is at uh, pork.org forward slash ASF, and you'll find uh, updates there. Sounds good. Dr. Wagstrom, what's MPPC's plan? Well, you know, we work more on the policy side than research. So as policy issues come up and policy changes, we will definitely keep producers informed. One of the things that we'll send out is calls for action, asking people to call their congresspeople, their senators and and congresspersons so that they can help support our opportunity for funding around these issues and we will communicate out through our uh, SIP investors and through our press releases. Very good. I think we've covered most of the topics that we uh, need to talk about for Vietnam. I know that the three of you have so much knowledge to share that we could go on for a long, long time, but is there any last words any of you have to offer? I think I'd like to mention as we look at prevention and preparedness that It is the responsibility of producers to also be involved in that. So being prepared on their farms, whether it's being part of secure pork supply, making sure they have an enhanced biosecurity plan, whether they um, have a good relationship with their veterinarian around biosecurity, making sure you know who your state animal health official is and you have a relationship with your state vets. All of those are things that producers can do on their farms to help with prevention and preparedness. That's absolutely correct, Liz. And, and on, you know, just to add on to that just a little bit is it's, it's their responsibility too to know uh, with not only know their state veterinarian, but know what that plan is, develop that relationship with that, that state veterinarian, absolutely get into the secure pork supply program and, and develop those documents for your farm. So you're ready if we need to respond. And going along with that, if we need to respond, we're going to need to be able to move those secure pork supply documents and movement information and premises information to state veterinarians so they can start to make they can start to make some decisions. And that's where AgView comes in. And that's the newly launched AgView, the checkoff launched this month. I would encourage folks to check that out as well. See what your role is in joining secure pork supply and, and the AgView system. Final word, I think, I hope that people got a sense of the coordination and the cooperation and the effort that's going on with their organizations. The American Association of Swine Veterinarians is also part of this whole coordinative effort. Pork Board, NPPC, SHIC, and AASV are really well coordinated in this. We're working closely together. We don't duplicate. We make sure that we all have our roles and we're doing the best we can do to make sure that we, one, prevent, but again, like I said, be prepared should something happen. 
Very good. I think our listeners understand the breadth and depth of the knowledge the three of you bring to our industry. And I know from working with all of you, how much I appreciate all of your hard work above and beyond your jobs uh, that you do for all of our producers and our practicing veterinarians. So with that, I would like to thank Dr. Paul Sundberg, Executive Director for the Swine Health Information Center, Dr. Dave Pyburn, Chief Veterinarian of the National Pork Board, and Dr. Liz Wagstrom, Chief Veterinarian for National Pork Producers Council for imparting your information and your knowledge. And I'm sure we'll have the three of you back on again soon. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Schick Talk from the Swine Health Information Center. Learn more about our organization and our mission to protect the health of the U.S. swine herd at www.swinehealth.org.